This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. I mean, I could see the, the, the risks for Republicans either way. You either you nominate Trump and you have all of his baggage, or you don't name, nominate Trump and then you sort of make an enemy of Trump in a general election setting, whether he's running as a third party candidate or not. So it's a tricky, it's, you know, it's a, it's a tricky dance here, I think. Welcome to Politics is Everything, the podcast of the Center for Politics at the University of Virginia. I'm Kara ong And I'm Kyle Connick. In this episode, we're going to talk about the Republican primary field, even though we're still about a year away from actual voting. Former President Donald Trump is one of only five candidates, and he was the first to officially announce a bid for the nomination. Kyle, I wonder if you can start by talking about how his candidacy is unprecedented in modern times. Yeah, we just don't have any you know, real, real recent experience of a, of a former defeated president, someone who's already been in the office seeking the nomination again. I mean, you could go back to like, uh, you know, Grover Cleveland lost and then came back and Teddy Roosevelt tried to come back in 1912. And that led to the split in the Republican party and the bull moose candidacy. But if you just sort of look at the, the modern history of presidential nominations, which I think really starts after the 1968, uh, uh, uh nomination process in which, um, the Democrats kind of changed their uh, primary process. The Republicans did too, that basically empowered the voters a little bit more. You know, you have had, um, you know, defeated presidents in that time, but none of them actively sought the presidency again. You know, Carter didn't, uh, Jim, Gerald Ford didn't, uh, George H.W. Bush did not. Uh, but here you have Trump, you know, doing it again. And so he's not as strong as he was in 2020 when he was the incumbent running. And Basically boxed out all the opposition and, and won you know huge landslides. Didn't really have any prime, primary trouble in any individual state. Um, so you know he's, Trump's not as strong as he was back then, but um, he does still command you know somewhere in the 40s or even the 50s in national polls. Um, and so he's an he's an imposing figure, but but maybe not an unbeatable figure. But again, it's not like we can look at a you know a race from the 80s or 90s or something that gives us some some uh, uh, historical comparison here. You know, I think that Trump coming back like this really is, it's basically unprecedented in modern times. So Kyle, you noted that political scientist Seth Maskett has identified 14 potential Republican candidates. Um, only two you would consider prominent national politicians, Trump and Nikki Haley. Um, three others have announced bids. Recently, former Governor Larry Hogan uh, went on CBS with Center Scholars Margaret Brennan and Bob Costa to announce that he wasn't going to run and specifically noting that he was not going to be joining the field so that uh, other candidates who might oppose Trump uh, would get would have more airtime. Uh, Senator Cruz has also announced that he is not going to run. How how common, how unique is it for candidates to announce that they aren't going to run and to give reasons like this? Uh, you know, I feel like this is this this often will happen sort of at the sort of the start of the presidential cycle, um, which is usually the you know the the uh, the odd numbered year before the primary season starts. Um, you have certain candidates, you know, making their intentions known. Um, you know, it's it, I feel like a lot of candidates will get in in the winter or the spring. Um, there have been exceptions over the years where uh, uh, candidates will get 
in a little bit later. Um, I guess one example, and this is one that I cite in the piece as, as sort of a cautionary tale, is Rick Perry in 2012. Um, he entered the uh, the day, or basically made it known he was entering um, the day of the old Iowa straw poll, which I actually attended way back in 2011, which used to be this sort of kind of big cattle call event uh, in, in, uh, in, in Ames, Iowa, on the campus of Iowa, Iowa state, there was the, you know, they did this straw poll that actually that year, Michelle Bachman won and Bachman ended up being not really a factor at all when it came to the primary time. But Perry got in shot to the top of the pack and then, then kind of fell off uh, pr- pretty quickly over the course of a, his sort of rise and fall happened over the course of like two months, basically. Um, but these days, you know, you, you generally see candidates getting in a little bit earlier, or sort of making their intentions known a little bit earlier. I think particularly for someone who, um, and so many presidential candidates start out this way, you know, those who don't really start with much name ID or much polling strength, they're probably incentivized to get in a little bit earlier so they can, you know, start ra- really raise money and sort of get out there. Um, it was kind of unusual and, and just frankly sort of strange that um, Donald Trump announced so early because Theoretically, you'd think he's someone who who really could wait, but um, he decided to announce, you know, really quickly after the uh, um, a- after after the midterm. But uh, one notable person who dropped out pretty early in a campaign cycle in recent vintage was Mitt Romney, um, who had been the 2012 presidential nominee, and he 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 announced fairly early in 2015, I think it was late January, that he was not going to run. Um, he later sort of expressed some re- regret about not running, given given what ended up happening, Donald Trump. Um, becoming the nominee, you know, whether Romney would have beaten Trump is a whole different story. But um, Romney was someone who got sort of winnowed out very early in in the 2016 cycle. um, And he made that early announcement. I think that was sort of one of the only major people that Jeb Bush, sort of the early presumed frontrunner, actually um, actually pushed out. And, you know, here we have, uh, you know, a couple of potentially prominent candidates, Larry Hogan, uh, former governor of Maryland, who's sort of an anti-Trump candidate, and then Senator Ted Cruz, who was an anti-Trump candidate in 2016. I don't think I'd really describe him that way now, um, deciding not to run. And then you've got several other candidates who are um, making sort of moves toward running, but are not officially announced. I'd say Ron DeSantis sort of leads that list. In the real clear politics average of national polls, Trump and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis together get about 75% of the total support. Trump is, in that poll, Trump is leading by 25 percentage points um, among potential Republican primary voters, 53 to DeSantis' 28%. Why is DeSantis doing so well, even as he has yet to declare a bid for the presidential nomination? Yeah, I mean, look, Trump is... is Pretty clearly ahead of DeSantis, at least in national polls that ask about multiple candidates. So there are some head-to-head polls between DeSantis and Trump, where DeSantis does pretty well. But uh, DeSantis being at sort of from the you know mid twenties, the mid thirties in national polling, that's still really high for someone who is not a sitting president, is not someone who's ever, ever run for president before. You know, hasn't been a vice president, hasn't been part of a national ticket. Um, and and so he, I think he's become a fairly prominent person within the Republican Party just by being the governor of Florida. Um, just started his second term and has been you know pretty active governor. Um, I think in a lot of ways he sort of has the right enemies from a Republican perspective. Um, in that he's you know kind of leaned in some sort of some culture war topics. Um, has also been uh, at least sort of associated with uh, um, being being sort of skeptical of maybe a heavy handed approach to uh, or an aggressive approach to 
uh, COVID mitigation and other things. But you know, DeSantis has become a pretty prominent person. And I think it also shows that there is a desire, at least from some Republicans, to move on from Trump, even though Trump is still, I would say, the leading candidate um, right now. And then you know, the question for DeSantis is, how does he actually perform, perform when and if he becomes a candidate? Also in real clear politics is national average this week. DeSantis is trailing President Joe Biden by four points in the hypothetical general election contest. But Trump is actually leading Biden for the first time by one point. Obviously, we're really far out. Um, do you make anything of 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 Trump taking the lead? You know, that has been um, something we've seen lately that it, it seemed like for a little bit, DeSantis did a little bit better against Biden, hypothetical head to heads. Now, maybe Trump is doing a little bit better. I think some of it is basically just kind of like noise. Um, I wouldn't necessarily put that much into it. Um, you know, I personally think that an alternative to Trump is probably a better bet for Republicans in the context of a 2024 general election. Um, but, you know, again, that the, the differences between uh, Trump and other candidates are not particularly stark at this point. Um, but these sorts of polls also are generally not predictive. You can go through, you know, a lot of history suggesting that you know, an incumbent president looked like he was in an extremely strong position, like George H.W. Bush uh, at this point in his first term. He, of course, ended up losing to Bill Clinton. Um, you could also find instances where it looked like someone like Ronald Reagan was in a lot of trouble for his second term, and that definitely did not end up being the case. So um, I would take particularly the sort of hypothetical head-to-heads um, for a general election. Um, I take that with, a, with, with a, you know, many grains of salt at this point. I think another important point to note about DeSantis that he is in many ways a younger version of Trumpism. Um, you know, he was elected uh, as a Tea Party candidate from Florida, served in the House. Um, uh, but he, you know, has steered clear of election denialism. And so he may be a way for the party to move forward um, at, in a new version of Trumpism, but without, uh, without perpetuating um, some of the problematic features of promoting the big lie. Yeah. And, and look, you know, one one we didn't really talk about this in the, in the article, but it is something that I think is worth thinking about is that so I think a lot of Republicans are worried about the downside of not nominating Trump and then Trump saying like, hey, don't support the Republican nominee or I'm going to run as a third party candidate or whatnot or, or whatnot. But, you know, there's also a potentially positive upside in not nominating Trump in that whoever ends up winning the nomination, if it's not Trump, will have by definition defeated Trump in the primary. Uh, and that might give that person some more credibility with sort of the middle of the electorate, even if it is the case that the actual nominee is really a pretty conservative candidate, which is how I would describe DeSantis. But, um, you know, maybe he's able to, uh, uh, you know, win back some wavering people because he's 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 a uh, hard harder to pin to Trumpism in part because he beat Trump, um, which, again, I think would would would, would confer a certain standing, um, even if, again, you know, he's he's ideologically not, not that much different than uh, um, th than Trump. So I think that's something to to consider here, too. But I mean, I could see the the, the risks for Republicans either way. You either you nominate Trump and you have all of his baggage or you don't name, nominate Trump and then you sort of make an enemy of Trump in a general election se setting, whether he's running as a third party candidate or not. So it's a tricky it's you know, it's a, it's a tricky dance here, I think. So let's talk wine track versus beer track. Um, and by that, I'm not asking which you prefer, <laughs> but uh, who is doing well within different elements of the party coalition? 
for the record, uh, I'm probably on the wine track just because I have celiac disease and can no longer drink my favorite microbrews. Um, Trump is doing stronger with the non-college group than the college group, and the college group is more divided than the non-college group is what you pointed out this week. Um, can you talk a little bit more about um, who is doing well within the different elements of the party coalition? Uh, it's probably bourbon track for me, but that's a totally different story. And I don't know how that would. <laughs> oh, I, I miss bourbon I, so much. <laughs> I don't know how that would. I don't know how that would translate to the to the to the overall dynamic here. But you know, so the wine track, beer track thing, I've always thought it was sort of a fascinating kind of shorthand for differences in party coalitions, and um, that sort of phraseology was coined by Ron Brownstein, um, longtime uh, political journalist. He writes for CNN and and the Atlantic. Really sharp, sharp person. And um, he uh, he just had an article about. This this out a couple of days ago. But basically what it what it sort of means is that um, beer track is sort of uh, um, basic in the context of what we're talking about a Republican primary. It's basically a shorthand way of saying um, people who don't have a four year college degree and wine track is people who do have a four year college degree. Um, and even in, you know, 2016, uh, Trump was stronger basically on the beer track than the wine track. And you can see it in the polling now in that to the extent that there is resistance to Trump within the Republican Party and support for candidates, you know, not named Trump in the GOP, um, that's much more prevalent amongst people who say they have a four-year degree than those who say they don't have a four-year degree. So one thing to watch is, can uh, a single non-Trump candidate, be it DeSantis or maybe somebody else, if somebody emerges and sort of supplants him as Trump's main rival, can that person consolidate the wine track um, as well or better than Trump consolidates the so-called beer track. Um, that was, you know, that that's something that didn't happen in, in 2016, um, but it probably needs to happen in 2024 if anyone is going to defeat, uh, um, defeat Trump. Uh, in terms of the makeup of the electorate, um, we're sort of relying on exit polls from 2016. And, you know, obviously by the time we're at the, the time of the election, um, those polls are going to be eight years old. And so they're sort of reflecting a, maybe a, a bygone electorate in some ways. Um, but uh, if you sort of look at the individual states that had exit polls, you know, some people, some places were, uh, you know, a little bit more of the electorate um, didn't have a four-year degree and other places um, a little bit uh, more of the electorate did have a four-year degree, but it kind of evens out to about 50-50. Um, you know, exit polls do sometimes overstate the education level of electorates. And so uh, it may be the case that the Republican primary electorate is um, a little bit more beer track than wine track. Um, but it, this is something we're just going to have to watch and, and, and think about as we're sort of uh, as pollsters are looking at trying to figure out the composition of the likely electorate is um, you know, how much of how much of a difference or, you know, what, what's the makeup of the electorate in terms of people who have four-year degrees and who don't? Um, because that that ultimately is going to determine, I think, a lot about um, what ends up happening uh, in, in this race. I think also one of the challenges for pollsters is going to be, you know, how much of the beer track of electorate can they get to um, because they they are becoming more and more hard to reach. Right. And, and also, you know, um, one thing that some people point out, and, and this is true when you look at the polls, is that. You know, DeSantis basically has better name recognition among sort of the wine track crowd. Um, and, you know, maybe those folks are just paying more attention to politics and whatnot. And um, as DeSantis gets better known, you know, Trump is someone who basically has 100 percent name ID. DeSantis has good name ID, but not not like Trump does. Maybe as more people get to know DeSantis when he if and when he officially announces his campaign, um, that they'll become more comfortable with him. But, you know, again, it's just something that that um, I think I sort of want to see, you know, because DeSantis is in this impressive early position. But 
We really don't know how he's going to perform as a national candidate on a national stage. It may be that he does great. It may be that he falls on his face. You just you just can never you can never know until you actually see it. Um, but you know, if if he does enter and does really well, um, you know, it may be that we basically already have our two main candidates here, and everything else is kind of just noise. So you also write this week about strength in a home state as a potential indicator of success for candidates. I wonder if you can talk about candidates who have previously done well in their own states and gone on or not to win the nomination for their party. And are there any potential candidates declared or not for 2024 that are doing well in polling numbers in their states? So I think the polling right now on the Republican side is it shows a very much nationalized electorate and that Trump and DeSantis are one, two in some order, basically everywhere. Um, of course, DeSantis and Trump now both claim are now are now both technically from Florida, although uh, Trump is sort of more associated with with New York. That's where he spent the most of you know the, the vast majority of his life as a resident. But he moved his official residence to um, to Florida um, during uh, during his presidency. But you know, DeSantis is the sitting governor of Florida. You'd expect him to um, be strong in that state. But you know, uh, back in 2016, you know when we had. Um, the March 15th primaries, there are a number of big states that voted that day. Uh, John Kasich, you know, the governor of Ohio, he won his home state over Trump. Uh, but Trump basically clobbered uh, Marco Rubio, the sitting senator from Florida in Florida, um, which knocked Rubio out of out of the race. And so, you know, that was a, a crucial race for Rubio to sort of see if he could stay in. And, you know, he lost his home state. So he ended up falling out. Um, Ted Cruz did win Texas himself, which gave him um, a little bit more of an opportunity to stay in. But, you know, eventually Trump was able to dispatch both, uh, you know, Kasich and, and Cruz uh, after dispatching Rubio earlier in the uh, process. Uh, the, the polling is sort of striking in that, when, you know, when you do have home state candidates or potential candidates asked about in certain states, they still lag behind DeSantis and Trump. So, um, for instance, uh, Nikki Haley, former governor of South Carolina, and Senator Tim Scott, um, who may or may not run, um, sitting senator from South Carolina, you know, they they run three, third and fourth behind Trump and DeSantis in some recent polls of South Carolina. Uh, Glenn Youngkin, the governor of Virginia, who's sometimes mentioned as a potential candidate, um, he he lags pretty far behind Trump and DeSantis within Virginia, even though he's very much well liked by Republican voters in, in Virginia. But, um, you know, he's behind DeSantis and Trump. Uh, Chris Sununu, the governor of New Hampshire, um, he's also pretty well liked by Republicans in his state, um, but he lags behind um, uh, DeSantis and Trump in, in, in his home state. So, um, you know, I think sort of the, the, the first I think objective for, for some of these candidates, if they do run, would be to sort of show that they're strong in their home states. And of course, New Hampshire and South Carolina stand out as being, you know, early states in the primary process. Um, but, you know, just being able to do that, is, that certainly isn't going to guarantee you the nomination. Um, and if you don't show strength at home, then it's a question of like, where are you going to show strength? And, and that's why, you know, it's, at this point, the, the numbers all point to this sort of DeSantis versus Trump collision. Again, maybe something happens to, um, uh, to, to upset that, but, but that's how it looks for the, for, the, for the time being. So I want to just quickly move on to a couple of other things that are happening in politics this week and get your take. Um, this week, the Supreme Court may have dropped some hints that it's not going to render a decision in Moore versus Harper. That's the case where Republican legislators have argued that 
uh, under an interpretation of the U.S. Constitution known as the independent state legislature theory, the state courts and the state constitution are powerless in matters relating to federal elections. Uh, this case came out of North Carolina uh, that was previously, uh, the Supreme Court in North Carolina was previously uh, held by a Democratic majority that changed with the 2022 elections um, in a bitterly fought contest. That Supreme Court, the North Carolina Supreme Court, has shifted to a Republican majority and is now going to rehear a case there um, about the legislature's illegally gerrymandered congressional map. Um, Kyle, what are your thoughts on whether or not more v. Harper might continue? The Supreme Court has a long history of trying to essentially punt on redistricting matters. Uh, and I think that, that maybe we're going to see that here. You know, it, it seems like if they if they were to render a decision that it might be maybe a little bit more limited in scope, although uh, more v. Harper does sort of have the potential to um, wipe out some uh, kind of reform efforts, I guess, in the at the state level and uh, um, in trying to combat gerrymandering. We've seen state courts in both, you know, blue states and red states kind of intervene um, on these matters. You also have commissions set up in certain states. You know, I mean, the Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme Court could, if it wanted to, go fairly far in terms of uh, not just not enforcing any um, restrictions against partisan gerrymandering itself, but also essentially present preventing states from weighing it against it as well. But um, maybe the court just is going to use this as an excuse to to, to just punt on the issue. Um, and that would allow states to continue to be kind of innovators in the uh, um, in doing something about about gerrymandering. You know, we have this uh, Wisconsin state Supreme Court race coming up uh, in a few weeks. Um, that uh, might change the partisan composition of that court, make it a uh, essentially a Democratic-leaning court. Um, that court might eventually weigh in against, uh, you know, the Republican-drawn maps in that state, um, which are what are, what are effectively in place now. Uh, but you know, again, some of this is contingent on well, what happens in that election, but also what happens with Moore v. Harper. But yeah, it wouldn't surprise me if the Supreme Court just used this as a way to to kind of uh, get out of having to issue some sort of big verdict in that case. Well, Kyle, thank you as always for your thoughtful analysis, listeners. You can read the Republican presidential primary still early, but maybe getting late on Sabato's Crystal Ball, written by both Kyle and our colleague Miles Coleman. We have a link in the episode notes. We love to hear your thoughts on where the Republican primary is headed, so feel free to email us at goodpolitics at virginia.edu. Hi, podcast listeners. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Politics is Everything. Editing and production was done by me, Kara ong Wigley. Our theme song is Let's Boogie by Chris Faze. You can learn more about the Center for Politics on our website at centerforpolitics.org. You can also follow us on Twitter, at center number four politics. Until next time.